I'm Laura Marsh, a field biologist and avid conservationist. I know firsthand that finding wildlife work is tough. You're often underpaid, undervalued, and burnt out. These are the stories and interviews from people just like you to help find solutions to the systemic problems in our industry and bring more equity and justice to the rich diversity of life on our planet. We are shaking up the world of conservation through Nova Conversations. Hello, wonderful humans. This is Laura Marsh with another episode of Nova Conversations. Today I'm talking with Danae Mouton, and she is just a joy. And this is one of the earliest recordings of the podcast that I made. I'm just releasing it kind of late. But um, I wanted to say that because (laughs) I've learned a lot since then um, about interviewing style and things like that. So it's not my best interview, but that's okay. I hope this encourages you. I hope, I really want this to be encouraging and not discouraging. And I'm saying that because I know that Danae, she wouldn't mind me sharing, and she acknowledges this in the interview, uh, she was able to work for free. She was able to get to travel to these places. And I mean, I have too. I have been able to travel for my work. So it's good to acknowledge our privilege. And now she has a full-time job, which is awesome. But what we're trying to do is help people without those privileges get full-time work in conservation. So I hope this is encouraging for you. She gives some great advice about not giving up, sticking with your goals, working hard, really understanding what it takes to do field work. And if you really, really want to be in conservation and in wildlife work, you can do it. You can. And that's so encouraging to hear. So I hope you enjoy my conversation with Danae. And I mean, I have too. I have been able to travel for my work. So it's good to acknowledge our privilege. All right. So today on Nova Conversations, I have Danae. Danae, am I pronouncing your name correctly? Yeah, that's right. (laughs) Okay. Danae Moulton? Mouton. Mouton. Oh, my bad. See, this this is the first interview where I don't know anything about my interview. Oh, got you. Nice. Yeah. It's it's an unusual name, so no worries. (laughs) You're not the first, nor will you be the last person to mispronounce it. (laughs) I am not offended, don't worry. (laughs) Well, my my maiden name was Laura Wadowski, and people... Uh Oh, yeah. I bet you got a lot of weird ones. (laughs) I love that, having a simpler last name, Marsh, like the wetland. Like, that's what I tell people. Mm, Yeah. So, both your line of work. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. So, um, Janae, tell me a little bit about yourself and how you heard about Nova Conservation and how you, what your story is with field work, what your story is in biology, your background in conservation work, and where you are now. So that's sure. a lot. Yeah, <laughs> I'll, I'll try to do a summary, but yeah, if you have more specific questions, just let me know. Um, yeah, so I grew up out on the East Coast in North Carolina, um, and yeah, went to school at UNC Chapel Hill, that's where I went to undergrad and got a degree in biology. UNC Chapel Hill does not really have a very specific wildlife program or ecology-centered program. And when I went into college, I had no idea what I wanted to do. I thought maybe I really liked writing. And so I thought I maybe wanted to do some kind of scientific writing. So I double majored in biology and English. And then I took chemistry and I was like, hey, I'm pretty good at chemistry. And I feel like a chemistry degree will get me a job that pays a lot of money. And so I switched to chemistry and then I took organic chemistry (laughs) and I realized I really hate chemistry. (laughs) I'm not good at chemistry. Well, I was decent at it, but I did not enjoy it. And I realized I didn't want a job that paid decent money because I didn't care. I just wanted a job that I loved and a job that would make me happy. And so I started taking um, some environmental science classes and met with a professor and was like, hey, I'm looking for careers in this kind of field, I wanna do something with conservation perhaps, but I don't really know what jobs are out there, what kind of career I could have. And he said, oh, you should try field work, Um, do it for a summer, you know, when you're not working because there really wasn't anything offered at my school that I could do while I was still a full-time student. Mm -hmm. And so he said, yeah, if you have the ability to during one of your summers, um, 
just try out field work, find anything you can, even if it's volunteering, you're not going to get paid, you know, just try it out if you're able to do that. Um, and so I did that. And one, I guess, the summer after my sophomore year of college, um, I did a volunteer. Um, I helped a PhD research student with her research. Um, and it was an amazing experience. I loved it. The research was in southeastern Arizona during the summer. So obviously very hot <laughs> um, and lots of, you know, crazy rattlesnakes and tons of cacti that want to kill you and you know everything there is really it's a pretty extreme environment and so after being there for you know that summer and absolutely loving every minute of it I was like okay yeah definitely this is what I want to do. Were um, you getting paid doing that job? No. <laughs> no so luckily I was super I'm super fortunate in the fact that my dad was a pilot and so I could actually fly out there for free wow. um yeah, using his privileges, which was, yeah, a big help. And then, yeah, the only thing I was really paying for when I was there was food. Um, the PhD student I was working for, you know, she was providing housing accommodations. You know, we were camping mostly when we were in the field, but then she also had an apartment um, that she would just let us, all the field crew stay at so we didn't have to find accommodation on our days off and things like that. So mm. um, yeah, luckily I wasn't wasting or like losing too much money doing that, but I was not making any money. Um, so for me, it was mostly just to try to get experience because I had zero um, experience doing any kind of field work or anything before then. What exactly did that field work encompass? I mean, you talked about- yeah. Cacti that wanted to kill you, and I'm like, like hacking cactuses. <laughs> yeah, there's a fun cacti out there called the choya, um, also called the climbing choya, which has these really long needles that have barbs on the end, and so they'll usually start, but you'll walk on the ground. Um, the the cactus itself can get pretty huge, but the seed pods have all the spines on them, and they'll fall off and end up on the ground, which is how they disperse their seeds. So it's not their fault. They're just trying to reproduce, but, <laughs> but those long spines will get stuck um, in your hiking boots or whatever, your feet. And they're called climbing choya because as you walk and your legs kind of brush together, the spines will help it move up your legs um, until they get, until you notice. And the fun part is you don't really notice the spines going in because they're designed to go in really smoothly. So you actually don't usually feel it until you kind of like feel something weird on your leg. And then at that point it's climbed up your leg and as it climbs, the spines go like deeper and deeper into your skin. Oh my then, God. <laughs> to get them out, the, the spines have little barbs on the end. So they're designed to go in really easily. But then when you pull them out, it's like that resistance of, yeah, having that little hook that kind of, yeah, just yanks out lots of skin on the way out. So, oh my gosh. <laughs> so pleasant experience. So evolutionarily, yeah, so. that's, that's to get, their seeds to other, to disperse to other places. So it's like, it's, it's supposed to be sticking into mammals. Is that kind of the, the gist of why it's attaching to? Right, exactly. Yeah. Oh, mm -hmm, I totally. And the spines are so long, you know, they have to go through mammal fur and stuff usually. So, you know, us as humans, we're just not, <laughs> we don't have any kind of barrier against them at all. But, um, yeah, so, you know, that was just one of the things out there, but we were studying, or the PhD student I was working for was studying um, carnivore populations in southeastern Arizona, um, and trying to, her research was trying to determine, you know, what locations have the highest species diversity, and then also relating that to human presence in the area to see if that had an effect on either abundance of species, individual species, or overall species diversity, and things like that. So it was all, like, remote sensing work and stuff, so, you know, we did see our study species from time to time, but a lot of it was like using track plates and camera traps and things like that um, to, to record all the species. So yeah, um, still got to see lots of cool animals and lots of cool wildlife, but, um, but yeah. What was so that, the study species? What's that? What was the study species? So it was all carnivores. Oh. So there's 15 species of carnivores in that region of Arizona. Um, and so it was, there. it's the highest, the region in the U.S. Um, with the highest species diversity of carnivores um, than anywhere else, which really? is weird because you would think like, oh, in a desert, there's less diversity because it's really barren and hard to live there, but that's actually, it's a really high diversity area. Oh, that's interesting to me, ecologically. Mm -hmm. Huh, fascinating. Mm -hmm. Okay, that's really yeah, cool. so, so you Yeah, that's kind of where I started out in field work and then yeah. realized I loved it after that project and just tried to get more experience um, with 
animals, you know, with wildlife and in conservation type work and did another like summer internship um, the next year while I was still in school that was paid but you know <laughs> it was a, a stipend a weekly stipend that was like a hundred bucks a week which you know especially where I lived was super remote so even just driving to get groceries you know between paying for gas and groceries it was not you know I was not making money but I was making enough to pay for food I guess <laughs> um, so yeah so that that was a great opportunity too and then yeah then after I graduated I just started looking for um, any jobs I could find doing field work with any species really um, I kind of you know actually in Arizona one of the um, techs that I worked with she was super into birds and birding and so I kind of got into conservation I was obsessed with wolves and large carnivores and that's what I really wanted to get into um, but then I just realized there are so few jobs <laughs> working with large carnivores and it's super competitive because everyone wants to work with wolves and, and other carnivores. They're super cool. Um, so, and I just didn't have very much experience. So, um, yeah, so I met this woman who, who I was working with and she was super into birds and I was like, yeah, I guess birds are cool. I don't know, you know, like I never really been super into them but they'd always been around and I'm like yeah they're part of nature. I like birds. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then yeah, after I I, had, I took an ornithology class in college and that really, I was like, okay, birds are legitimately cool. I love birds. I want to get more into them. So then when I graduated, I was like, hey, there's actually a lot of jobs that revolve around birds just because there's a lot of funding due to like the Endangered Species Act and Migratory Bird Act. So like, you know, the, the opportunities were more available and I was interested in them. So I kind of switched over to birds and have been doing birds ever since, <laughs> studying birds ever since. So um, yeah, started out doing some bird banding projects and then started getting into some endangered species work with spotted owls and then snail kites and now condors are the California condors are the endangered species I work with now. Um, and yeah, and then just did some bird banding in between those jobs and, and yeah, have been with birds ever since and now I'm working with the largest land bird in North America. So <laughs> it's come, come full circle. <laughs> so, okay. So you decided to pursue bird work because you saw more opportunities there. Mm -hmm. What were some of the ways that you got your foot in the door with bird banding and get that experience yeah. to those other jobs? Yeah, so my first, those job, <laughs> my first job out of college was, well, technically my first job out of college was dog walking um, because <laughs> I was applying for jobs and had no money. <laughs> and um, so, yeah, I was doing odd jobs, doing a lot of dog walking, a little bit of nannying on the side just to make money um, while I was applying for jobs because it took a while to get my first field job. Despite the fact that I did have some field experience, it's like shocking how, <laughs> how much experience you need just to get that first job so the first job again in quotes I got <laughs> um, was the bird banding job I worked up in Nova Scotia um, on a couple islands off the coast of Nova Scotia and again it was volunteer um, my housing and food were covered which was great so I wasn't paying for that and we were living on a remote island so it wasn't there was it was impossible to spend money even if I wanted to um, so you know that was pretty pretty great but yeah I was not making any money in that job the point of that job was really for me to get experience and I'd seen a lot of bird banding jobs on job boards and I was like okay maybe if I can get this experience with bird banding that'll kind of open doors to other opportunities um, and even though it's volunteer I had been to Nova Scotia once before and I really really love it like my dad's side of the family is all Cajun who originally their like ancestors way back in the 1700s were all Acadians who lived in Acadia which is um, Nova Scotia now so um, so I'd been there before on like a family history kind of trip to see some of the like historical Acadian heritage sites and stuff up there and then um, yeah really loved being up there and so when I saw the bird banding job there I was like okay it's not paid but it's volunteers working with birds and it's in Nova Scotia on these islands which sounds amazing like I was like okay maybe it's worth it it's only for the fall season so it was a short term like three month position and so I applied and yeah was accepted and flew to Nova Scotia. So um, yeah, it was an amazing time. I really, really loved that job. Everyone I worked with out there was so great. They were, you know, because I had zero experience, I was the only one there when I started with zero experience. And so, um, and they, they knew that going into it. And so they totally, you know, did a great job of teaching me everything. And 
honestly just like really sparking a passion for birds for me. Um, I mean, I already knew I loved birds, but just like, yeah, getting into birds even more, getting into birding more and not just banding them, but observing them and stuff and just really, really fell in love. And, and yeah, that, that kind of gave me the experience I needed to apply for other jobs. Um, and I can see it. I can see how you're on the island and there's nothing to do, like no bars, no. Yeah. You know, like, oh yeah, there's nothing out there. <laughs> stuck with a bunch of bird nerds, like of course, like they're gonna fan that flame that you have. Totally. Like a passion for birding and and seeing all these rare species and getting into like once you get your hands on a bird, I think that changes something in you, like something clicks, and all of a sudden you're like, oh, this is a tangible connection I can have with living mm -hmm. creatures and. Totally. Yeah, there's just something fascinating about bird banding and seeing them up close and handling them and seeing how their feathers work and all the intricacies and the details. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, it's, it's a big learning curve. And, um, you know, I always did really well in school, but now I was going into a field where I was, you know, didn't necessarily need that school knowledge. I mean, you know, you don't right. have to be good at academia to bird band. It was right. more about like using those, you know, hands-on skills and stuff and that I really enjoyed that like that's what I fell in love with about field work and yeah just being out like the islands that we lived on were just I mean phenomenally beautiful and there was two different islands and one of them was one of them you could see the mainland from so you were like okay I'm not totally you know I, I can see it in the distance I'm not like out here by myself but the other one was farther offshore and yeah it was just it was just amazing like I yeah it's probably like the healthiest I've ever felt in my life and yeah I'm just so disconnected from the outside world but at the same time like really connected with the people that I worked with like had this great friendship and camaraderie with them and then also just loved the work that I was doing and got to see so many different species there's you know because we were kind of out on the coast and on these islands there was a lot of like migratory stopover for tons of different species and yeah just got to see so many cool birds that I would have some species of which I've never seen you know again and so yeah it's just it was such a good opportunity and I'm, I'm privileged that I was able to do that job because I was working for no pay but um yeah it was totally worth it and I'm so glad yeah that I did that yeah it's good to acknowledge that privilege I mean mm -hmm. I feel that all the time of like okay the only reason I can even be doing stuff some of the things I'm doing is because of this privileged background so mm -hmm. it's true and it's and so speaking to that a little bit um mm -hmm. do you, you felt like it sounds like you felt like overall your experience up in Nova Scotia where even though you weren't getting paid you had a place to say it was a really cool location the species were amazing the, the crew was amazing you learned so much overall it sounds like it's worth it for mm -hmm. you to not take pay and right. so I guess my question is like, how do you think other people who can't afford those experiences can get, can get to have the same kind of wildlife experiences that someone like us can have? Like, I, and I don't expect you to know and have an answer. I just, right. I, this is the stuff I've been thinking about almost nonstop. Yeah. How can we even out the playing field, so to speak, so that's not just the typically white, typically privileged people mm -hmm. who are in this industry. What, what are some solutions we could find to even this out? Do you have any thoughts yeah. on that? I mean, I think a big thing is just putting the impetus on whatever organization it is to offer some kind of stipend and money for those positions that even, you know, someone who has no, I mean, you know, like I even had some of some of the background in field work, you know, I had two summers worth of doing, you right. know, conservation kind of field work stuff. And so even though I had zero experience with bird banding, you know, it getting some kind of stipend to come out and, or at least, you know, like getting my airfare covered, getting like all expenses paid, which I mean, my food was covered, my travel wasn't. And so, I mean, just getting those kind of, taking care of those kind of obstacles. Um, yeah, I think it's even for someone who's like trying to get into the field that maybe has no experience, if they can get an internship or vol volunteer work, even if it's, you know, they're not getting a salary paycheck, if they're at least getting all expenses paid and they're feeling like they're not losing money while they're there. I mean, this is like a three month trip. So it's, and you know, that's not entirely feasible for most people to like have no pay for three months, but um, yeah, at least it's a shorter term thing where it's like, okay, you know, you can do this for no expenses paid and get this experience and then be able to apply for, for jobs, you know, that require that experience and that will pay more. 
that being said, like there, you know, even as I had that experience and I was applying for other jobs, like they were paying, but they still weren't paying, you know, for the amount of experience I had and all of the months that I had accumulated without pay, <laughs> then to be applying for jobs that did pay when that pay was still, you know, not what I feel it should have been at and not what I think most people feel <laughs> it should be at um, mm -hmm. to the level of, of yeah, you're, to, to compensate you adequately for your experience. And I think that's, you know, most of that is on those individual organizations to make that a goal, to offer a living wage and uh, a livable salary. You know, a lot of jobs don't even pay minimum wage for the state that you're in and they can get away with it. And I, yeah, I don't really know all the legality of how that's possible, but, you know, at least, you know, if you're doing a job, regardless of if you have experience in it or not, you should be at least making enough to cover the minimum wage in whatever region you're working. I mean, that that's bare minimum. You're still working, even if you don't have the experience, even if they have to train you beforehand, right. you're still working. You're still a valuable part of the crew. I mean, even when I was in Nova Scotia, there was a time where it was just me and one other person on the island for an extended period of time. And, you know, if I hadn't been there, I mean, someone would have taken my place, I'm sure. But if I hadn't been there, you know, that's one person trying to run a bidding station that's not feasible. So I was providing, you know, at that point, I basically finished a lot of the training or like was competent enough in the training to be able to band independently for the most part. And, you know, that that was a job I was performing that I wasn't getting paid for. And so I think a lot of that is on those organizations to provide that that money. I mean, there's there's not a lot that you could do when you're someone who's applying for those positions and you don't have experience. You can't say like, okay, I'll come on your project if you pay me money. Like you, they're like, okay, no, we'll just find someone else who will do it for free because there are people who will. And so it's, yeah, because the industry is so competitive and yeah, I think a lot of it is putting pressure on organizations to do that. And yeah, I don't know the best way to do that. I think a lot of it is, you know, working from the inside out and, you know, getting to know people in organizations and really pushing for that. Or if you do kind of work up and, you know, attain a higher level position in organization, then really focusing on that and, and trying to make it better for the, for the people coming after you. Um, but yeah, and I mean, that's something I definitely, yeah, I'm really passionate about and, and want to do. But yeah, from when you are just starting out in the field, there's, it's really hard to, uh, yeah, to do that on your own. You have no power, you have no influence. And so, yeah, I think that's the big thing is, is they're just organizations recognizing that that is a huge need in this field to pay field workers adequately. Yeah, I think raising awareness and that and, and talking to organizations about that, making that a priority for them is, is the goal. And they're, yeah, I don't know the best way to achieve that, but that's definitely, yeah, I think that's the only way things are gonna change for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's um, one of the main goals of Nova Conservation. We're, we're becoming a 501c3 nonprofit and we're really trying to put pressure on those organizations. So there's like a few different approaches that we can take is the, the top-down approach of like where you pressure the organizations to like hold hold their workers and hold their mm -hmm. sites accountable. So this, I'm thinking ecologically, ecological terms, there's like top-down pressure and then right. bottom-up pressure too. So this podcast is is going to be not necessarily the top down pressure because I know I've talked to a lot of um, people who run organizations who are like, listen, I don't have any money either. I'm getting paid a separate mm -hmm. salary exactly. else. I mm -hmm. I am running this organization and I'm getting my money from somewhere else or I'm getting paid le less than some of the field techs and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's no there's no yeah. way to win. How That's do, very true too. Yeah. Mm -hmm. There's just no money. And then, and then it comes back to conservation needs money. So how do we get more money? So mm -hmm. anyway, um, and how do we get the money to go to the the best organizations? Right. Not unethical, like, I don't know. So, mm -hmm. so this podcast in particular is going to, I hope it will be like this bottom-up approach of like, we have these conversations with the people in the industry and, and not not the leaders of organizations necessarily, although I do want to have those conversations, but this is the people who are trying to break into the industry or, or just starting out or a few years into their career, early in their careers, and they're trying to um, figure out how they can make money sustainably in this industry when the, the pressure is so extreme because there's so many people here and so few mm -hmm. jobs. So the economics don't work in our favor, but if we all have these this awareness and these conversations about 
these traps that you can fall into, maybe, maybe we'll start standing up and saying, no, we're not going to accept these jobs. No, we're not going to accept working my butt off and getting no pay. Mm -hmm. So all of that to say that there's there are different levels and conditions of when uh, it's so tricky. There are different levels and conditions because everyone wants to get into this industry. So like, mm-hmm. at what point do you say, oh, only these certain people can get in and these certain people can't, or we should give preference, maybe preferential mm-hmm. application or more, more money or more stipend money to go to these people who have been oppressed all this time that could be an option like scholarships and extra funds yeah. towards, to I mean, I think corporate too, like, diversity and inclusion and equity and all that so what what were you going to say I mean I think too like there is you know I mean obviously I feel that it should be the organizations yeah themselves paying money if they're able to but you're right there is a huge lack of funding overall in conservation and science so that that's understandable the organizations that are able to pay more yes they should be paying more and then also I think you know, if, yeah, I think it is on kind of our community to be, you know, aware that there are jobs that, that people won't be able to do because they're not privileged, they don't have that privileged background. And so that, you know, that's also something that I think as a community we can do is, is raise money. Yeah, whether it's like some kind of fund that, you know, can be started by people who have the ability to, you know, support someone in the field, you know, doing more fundraising and stuff, getting people that are, you know, have affluence or are privileged to, and are willing to fund young conservationists to get into the field, like, yeah, tap into that resource and somehow, you know, yeah, provide some kind of stipend for people, someone who might be like, okay, I really need this experience, you know, they can reach out to some third party organization and say like, hey, I really want to do this job to get experience in conservation, but I can't, you know, it's not going to pay me and I can't afford to live on my own. And this other organization could say like, yep, we'll pay you, but we'll basically pay your salary so you can get this experience. And yeah, I don't know if that, if that's the solution too, but I mean, I know that's definitely been done in certain situations and, and yeah, I think, yeah, I think it's worth it or whether it's like paying for someone's housing, if they can't, you know, maybe they can, the job's going to pay them, but not enough to afford housing in the area, which is also very common that like, in their housing's not provided, you know, being able, having a resource to reach out to, to say like, hey, I'm getting started in conservation. This is the job I want to do, but I need, you know, I need a stipend to pay for my housing so I can afford to do it. And yeah, I think having that as a resource would be super helpful for people coming into the field who, you know, otherwise might be like, okay, I can't do this field at all because I can't even get my foot in the door. Um, Having, you know, and then once you do get that early experience and start to build your repertoire a bit, your resume a bit, then, then you are able to apply for jobs where you can make a living wage (laughs) and actually, you know, make enough money to sustain yourself and, and save money and things like that. So, um, yeah, I think having some some organization, some funding resource for people, specifically for people who are just starting out in the field would be awesome. And yeah, that, that's also, you know, another way to go at the same problem, I think. Yeah, the, the need-based scholarship kind of idea or some kind of need-based mm-hmm. where you show I have a need and here's mm-hmm. my need. It's my passion for this industry. Here's what I've done in the past. Here's how I volunteer locally, maybe, or well, I don't know. Let's just say, here's how all the ways that I have this need to get into the industry. Mm-hmm. And here's what I can bring to the industry. And maybe, I don't know. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a worthwhile discussion to have, um, but it's good to think about solutions. Right, mm-hmm. definitely. There's no easy. So what, um, what I've heard you mentioned a few times is just like being compensated, the need to be compensated adequately for what we are mm-hmm. trained and skilled to do. And I cannot resonate that enough of like, I am a trained bird bander. I have X amount of years in the field. And if I'm going to take a job bird banding, I need to get paid that reflects how much training and how many years of experience I have. So that is something that is definitely not done in our industry and it doesn't it makes sense in some some ways but like if you compare it to like say a mcdonald's worker or something they're trained for a few weeks and then they get paid Mm -hmm. a base you know at least minimum wage salary and in the wildlife industry we get trained sometimes for years uh, for a particular skill and then we don't even get paid minimum wage so it's like 
what is going on? Yeah. In some other ways, it makes sense because of the geographical nuances. Like, I don't want to justify it. I by no means want to justify it. It's okay. But but I can see how this type of system evolved to just be the the problem that it is, and that's why we're trying to find these solutions. Because yeah, and it's hard too because people in this field. I mean, we're all super passionate about what we do. We're not in this field to make money. (laughs) You know, Uh, yeah, no one is in this field to make money. money. No one is in this field to you know yeah have some like (laughs) to get fame or like maybe some people are. I don't think so though. I mean, everyone I've worked with is they do it because they love wildlife, they love conservation, they love ecology, some aspect of the environment that they're interested in. And, and that's why they do it. Like, yes, but those people still deserve to make a living, you know, they still deserve to survive (laughs) and be able to, you know, have, have their basic needs met um, financially. And, and yeah, that, it's unfortunate that like, some of the most passionate and like dedicated people that I know are people in this field who, or yeah, they're not getting paid to do the jobs that they love or they're not getting paid adequately to do the jobs that they love. And I, I have friends who have been in this field and then have switched to other fields because they can't afford it anymore. And right. it's heartbreaking because you know this field is losing a lot of people because of that. So many passionate, skilled, yes. and people because of that. And yeah, that it's infuriating and, <laughs> and disgusting. It's not the way it should be, but it, it unfortunately is. And so, yeah, I think it's on those of us who are still in the field, still working in the field, and and people who have the ability to support the field outside of the field to, to work on a solution towards the, to solving that problem, yeah. Right, and that that's actually that's a great segue. You didn't even know it was gonna be a good segue. I can talk about a few other things that you, <laughs> that you're, you're a, look, you're a podcast in, uh, interview extraordinaire. Uh, I, I started NOVA Conservation because I thought I was gonna be taking people on eco trips to do this biological work because as a biologist, I think the work we do is so incredible and awesome. And I wanna bring people out who can't afford to do those trips. And then that money would go and help the researchers and help the yeah. tech, the um, conservation community and help that institution that's doing those trips, right? Right. So then pandemic hit, then I did a database of all these opportunities trying to make, put them in one place so you could easily find them. Mm-hmm. And then the feedback I got from that was, well, this organization is still unethical because you have to charge to pay. They charge to pay for this trip or they charge to pay for this training experience and a bird bending apprenticeship in mm-hmm. South America. So, and I was like, oh my gosh, there's ethics, like ethics are so entangled and tied up in everything. And I was like, I know no one is perfect, but like I was trying to just clearly avoid any like unethical, like blatant unethicality, you know, but there are definitely different levels and nuances to all of this Mm -hmm. stuff. Because if you can't afford to train in a certain place and you can't afford to work for free, then that leads to these diversity inclusion problems down the road. So all sorts of, all sorts of trickle down effects that I'm now realizing is a bigger beast than I ever would have thought, hence this podcast, hence turning into 501c3 nonprofit. Mm-hmm. All that to say, so Nova Conservation is now on the nonprofit track, so we can be the separate third-party entity, and simultaneously, I'm going to be starting my original vision of some kind of biological travel experiences for, yeah. the, people, for the people that can give the money back. Yeah, I mean, I think that's a great idea that, I mean, at least in my experience, I've met so many people who have been able to like tag along on a fieldwork day or who have just told about my work and they get so amped up about it. Like, they're like, oh, it's so cool that you do that. And, and, you know, a lot of them are looking like, yeah, I would support someone doing that or, you know, they at least are open to it or I know they're able to, to support people like that. And I think that is a huge, like, it's really hard, you know, it's hard to envision it unless you're there seeing the work happen. It's hard, you know, someone can describe it to you, but it's not the same as when you're in the field and you run up to a net and you pull out a bird and you're like, oh my gosh, this is a super rare bird. And, or it's a recaptured bird from like 10 years ago and it's a super old bird and you get somewhat excited about it when, you know, they might have no idea what a warbler is or whatever, but you're, you're <laughs> opening that world to them and they're like, oh, this is amazing. And then when they find out that like, you, they see that you're really skilled and that you're able to do this work and they're like wait you're not getting paid for this like what <laughs> a lot of people just have no idea who are not in the field they have no idea and so I think a lot of it is kind of reaching out into those other sectors of people who you know 
are, are environmentalists, but maybe are not like in, in the conservation field. And so, yeah, they're willing and able to support people, but they just don't know how, and they've never been asked to, mm -hmm. to do that. And I think- That's a great point. Yeah. They're mm -hmm. willing, but they've never been asked. They would totally give if they were asked. Right. And another demographic to tap into is, are the people like you were talking about, the biologists who tried to get a job in this field, tried and tried and tried for years, couldn't afford, like just couldn't make it work financially and then had to right. get a job out of the conservation and biological community. And they, I mean, I kind of am that person because I'm like, I'm in it, yeah, but I'm not in the field all the time. So right. I'm just like, I can't, be traveling around with two kids 24 mm -hmm. and well, so I think too you know I mean there's people that have they are raising families or whatever they might have health issues that mean that they can't be a full-time field worker or something and you know I think this field is for everyone it's not just for people who are physically fit and able to go out hiking and and have no attachments to family or whatever that they can do it you know that's I think it should be for everyone and and it should yeah, these, these jobs should be made more accessible to people who might not otherwise be able to do this kind of work. Yeah, I think that's another big issue too. Yeah, the accessibility piece. And, you know, just going and doing a field job or tagging along with for a field job for a week at a time, I can't commit to a few months, right. but I can commit to a week or two. Mm -hmm. Being able to pay, have someone pay for that experience. Yeah. So the, the demographic of like someone who's a cons interest in conservation, but you know doesn't really have any biological experience but then there's this also demographic of people who are interested and have this biological background they just can't work in it anymore but they want to work in it and so mm -hmm. those trips are catered to them and they they can see their money actually going directly back to these projects which i think would be a really right. cool connection like uh, maybe i couldn't work in biology but if I have the means and the finances, I can at least support conservation through mm -hmm. this project. So I'm yeah. like, that, that gets me amped up. I'm like, that's- Totally, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think a lot of that like conservation money right now is, you know, people are like, oh, I want to support, you know, birds. I'm going to donate to the Audubon Society or something, which is great. But like, if there was that other avenue of like, yes, you can also donate to these organizations, but like, what if you could actually directly support someone in the field trying to, you know, do a research project for the Audubon Society or something, you know, and, and kind of, yeah, direct funding into all aspects of conservation and not just like these big name organizations, which, you know, are, I mean, everyone's hurting for funding. It's not yeah. like they're just like rolling in the dough, but, you know, redirecting those funds to people who like that could change their whole life, you know, that could, that could make them able to have a career in this field long term and, and you know, yeah. I mean, it's it's amazing to work in this field, and I, I want the opportunity to be more available to people who otherwise wouldn't be able to be in this field, because it's totally worth it. Like, yeah, you're never going to make a ton of money, but if people can at least make enough to, like, live off of and, and yeah, pay their bills, that's, like, that, I mean, that seems like such a sad goal that, like, that's not reality, but that, I mean, that is the goal. It's, yeah, just pay people enough to be able to pay their bills, buy food, you know, get their bare necessities met and, and everything else is the job, you know, everything else that, I mean, at least for me, that's all I need in life. <laughs> I need to pay my bills. I need to buy food to eat. And otherwise, like, I'm totally happy being in the field all the time. Like that's, yeah, I don't need other material things. I don't need, you know, to accumulate wealth. It's mostly just having your basic needs met. Like that's, that's the bare minimum. And that's, that's all I think a lot of people in the field are asking for. Yeah, and that's even hard, so hard to get, which is just exactly. Mm -hmm. Insane. Yeah, totally. So, um, so you worked with spotted owls some, and now you're doing work with California condors. Tell me a little bit about maybe, well, your work with spotted owls, if you want to talk about that, or your current work and what you're sure. doing. Yeah, I love I love both species a lot. Yeah, so I after I did the bird banding job in Nova Scotia, that gave me the experience, <laughs> somewhat, you know, bird related experience to apply for a spotted owl internship. Um, so I got that, moved out west to California, um, loved, fell in love with being out west and fell in love with spotted owls and, and wanted to stay out there. And yeah, the owls are amazing. I mean, yeah, I'm sure people in this field have noticed, but there is a lot of jobs that relate to endangered species because of the Endangered Species Act that gives a lot of funding usually to study endangered species. And so 
um, once I kind of got that experience with spotted owls, which are an endangered species, um, or yeah, are covered under the ESA, then, um, then, you know, after that, I was like, okay, I have all this, you know, documented experience being able to follow U.S. Fish and Wildlife Service protocols and all that kind of stuff, and so then could apply that to working with other endangered species, which eventually led me to California condors. Um, but yeah, spotted owls are amazing. They're super cute. They're, <laughs> they're crazy birds. I love them. They're beautiful. They're, yeah, they're yeah, I, I love them. I'm obsessed with them. <laughs> so, I, I always try to, I, I try to ask this at the beginning of interviews, but do you have like a favorite field work story that you want to share? Uh, yeah. Anything that out, like <laughs> awkward or just funny or anything like that? Do you have anything? Like uh, I could sit here for probably like a week and tell you <laughs> all, all of the field story. I, yeah, I, there are so many amazing stories. I, yeah, I, <laughs> it's very hard to like just pick one because there's so many crazy like hilarious weird moments that happen in the no, field. Share, um, your, share your favorites like top okay. two or three. Yeah. <laughs> I'll try um well I'll share one that happened super recently because it was okay. pretty it's a pretty exciting moment and I have to give you a little bit of background so that it makes sense but um so right now I work with California condors um there are about 300 California condors in the wild right now. And so the population that I study is about hundred birds in size. Um, well, nice. 90 birds right now. So it's a pretty small population. Um, and so we know we have all the birds tagged. We know all of the birds very intimately. Um, the reason why the birds are endangered, well, there are a lot of reasons why they became endangered in the first place, but the biggest threat right now to survival is lead poisoning. Um, so they, they get lead poisoning and, and lead poisoning, as we know, with humans is pretty deadly. Um, is that the lead poisoning from bullets? Is that? Yeah, it's, it's mostly from lead-based ammunition. So lead's a really soft metal and it fragments um, very easily when it hits a carcass or an animal, which is why it kills that animal uh, very quickly or is able to kill that animal. Um, and so that's the primary metal that's used for, for hunting and has been for a while now or yeah, any any in any kind of bullet, whether you're using it for hunting or self-defense or whatever, most of them are lead-based. Um, and so that's, um, yeah, been a big focus is trying to switch to non-lead ammunition, which is available, but it's more expensive. Um, and so that, and, you know, in some cases it can be about equal price, but in a lot of cases it can be a bit more expensive and it's just a new type of ammunition. It shoots differently. So people that are used to using lead, it's, it's definitely a change. Um, but anyway, so all that to say, you know, we know the birds super well. Um, and there's one bird in our flock in particular who we call affectionately, unofficially, very unofficially, he's our white whale, um, because we only see him usually once or twice a year. Um, he just does not come to any of our camera trap sites, any of our bait sites. We try to trap all of our birds at least once or twice a year to test them for lead poisoning and to change out. We have transmitters and GPS tags on them to keep track of them. And so um, he, he is a bird that has is usually only seen once or twice a year and has only been trapped once in the past 10 years. Wow. Um, five, five years ago. Um, and <laughs> I just got super lucky. And it, this was Saturday. So two days ago, um, I was up at one of our bait sites and he showed up and I trapped him. So that was, it's hard to like, I, for people that don't know the birds as well as we do, it's like really hard to communicate how exciting and like, adrenaline inducing that was but yeah I mean he's a bird that just is never around and to see him you know for him to be there I was already freaking out and then as soon as he went into our trap which we bait with food so that we can lure them in to trap them um yeah as soon as he went to the trap I was able to close the trap and yeah just had a total like nerd freak out moment so we're just gonna handle him this Wednesday so I'm super pumped to yeah that's awesome. All of his tags are super old, so we're going to replace all his tags, give him a new GPS, new transmitter so that we can keep track of him. And yeah, it's just super, super good feeling. So that was a particularly like awesome. And even better because you're like, I was the one who closed that trap to get the one. Like that. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it was sheer luck that I was just up there that day. I was up there for a totally unrelated reason. We weren't even trying to trap oh, birds really? during that time. So it was like totally random. Yeah. Just, and I think he knew like, I don't know. This is totally just my personal opinion, but I feel like he knew that we weren't trapping anymore for the year because we don't usually trap in the summer. It's really hot. And so 
yeah it, <laughs> it was just I think he knew that like we weren't supposed to be trapping and so he he came but I don't know who knows <laughs> who knows why he came by that day but yeah total <laughs> luck that I was there but I will definitely be gloating about that for <laughs> for quite some time it was pretty awesome <laughs> anytime any of your like co-workers or field techs or whatever does something and they're like you're just like well I caught the I, I caught him yeah condor <laughs> <laughs> number is 330 we refer to all the birds by their stud book number so he's 330 is our white whale and yeah <laughs> I will that will forever be like my greatest achievement but yeah. <laughs> but so anyway that was just kind of a recent story but yeah there's a great tons story. of awesome awesome field stories with condors yeah with spotted owls I think some of my best stories with spotted owls we um occasionally used mice um to determine locations of nests so that's that's the u.s fish and wildlife protocol um thing it's really humane for the mice um for anyone that's like freaking out because mice are dying like they're feeder mice that we buy from pet stores so they're usually going to be fed to snakes anyway so they're not gonna live a full long life anyway <laughs> um and a death by spotted owl is very quick but um but yeah so we <laughs> we would occasionally and we we only used it sparingly when we absolutely had to but um it is it is Part of the U.S. Fish and Wildlife Protocol, so we would mouse owls. So just you know, when you're around owls that are very keyed into mice and are very like ready to hunt, it's pretty, it's very exciting and very fun and very intense sometimes. And there was, uh, I worked on the same spotted owl project for two field seasons. I was an intern for the first season and then a technician just last year. Um, and so I had two interns I was working with last year as their technician and. Um, one of them was we we had to mouse an owl to determine where this nest was and the owl was it's there are certain owls that like we have to mouse not every single year but often enough that they get kind of clued into us and they they can hear the mice probably we have kept carrying the mice in their packs with us when we're coming into the field and so they can you know they have really good senses they can hear the mice they kind of know who we are they see us around a lot and so they'll really? get really in. Can you describe the the process of of how that find how that helps find the nest? Oh like yeah, sure. Yeah, so um, by putting a mouse out, if the owl takes the mouse, usually it's the male owl that's that will be grabbing the mouse if there is a nest, um, because the female incubates. So um, the female is on the nest. The male will take the mouse, and then usually if they're nesting, he'll just take that mouse straight to the nest uh, because he's constantly hunting to provide food for the female and, and for the young chicks and stuff. So, um, yeah. You will so, leave the mouse near where you think the nest is going to be. And then uh, just sometimes, <laughs> sometimes. So you, you have to find the owl first. So yeah. that in itself is a challenge. If you find an owl, a single owl by itself and you can't find a mate around it, then it's potentially has a nest. And so depending mm -hmm. on, I mean, there's a lot of different things that go into making that decision but if you are going to mouse then you put out a mouse for that single owl mm -hmm. sometimes it flies to like the next tree over and oh look there's the nest mm -hmm. um you know before that you would do like a really thorough vis visual search in that area to try to find the nest just on your own without using mice and usually you can I'd say like mm -hmm. nine times out of ten but there's some nests that are just there's no way you can see into them they're impossible to find or <laughs> the alternative is they're super far away and so you offer a mouse to this owl that's sitting there and then it just goes it just flies with the mice so then your job is to chase the owl <laughs> run as fast as you can which you know you're running over like very steep terrain because spotted owls love very steep terrain that's where they nest usually so you're like you know sprinting after them sliding around crawling up and down drainages trying to chase this owl not lose sight of the owl because we got to see where it goes and then, it. and then see if it goes to a nest and try to figure out then then afterwards try to figure out how to, you can see into that nest to confirm that there's a female in there um but yeah so it's <laughs> sometimes it's very straightforward and there have been times where the owl just takes the mouse and just starts flying and it's like oh shit here we go <laughs> so yeah it's it's always an adventure every time and there yeah there are hundreds of stories i could tell about that but there's yeah this one story last year um the owl was we had we had a pretty good idea of where the nest was and thankfully the male owl hung out pretty close to the nest so we weren't really expecting him to like take off and go flying you know uh -huh. there. so we we're expecting it to be pretty straightforward but um but he was definitely he was an owl that had been moused before so he keyed into the mice he knew what we were there to do he was very like ready to go for a mouse like uh -huh. they, they do this really cool like head movement when they're like trying to like size up their 
flight pattern and stuff and like how they're going to go after their prey so he was like doing that and the intern I was with it was only her first or second time mousing I think so she had not had a lot of experience with it and she had not had experience mousing an owl that was that like keyed in like sometimes they're super bored and they don't even care they're like you have to like make squeaky noises and like try to entice them to come down but this owl was like ready to go like he was very interested in what was happening and so I was like she was getting a little nervous she's like is he gonna like you know fly at us like is, is he gonna wait for the mouse to get put out and I was like oh yeah he's fine like they don't go for humans like they'll wait like they they know what the mouse is about like uh -oh. <laughs> I'm telling her that <laughs> and then I was kind of between her and the owl and so she was I forget I don't know if she was like looking for a good spot because the other thing too is you want to find a good spot to put the mouse out so that it doesn't like run into the duff layer and get lost in the leaves and then you lose the mouse right. yep. yeah. <laughs> so usually you put it on kind of like a prominent like log or something that's like above the ground and that's yeah. also easier for the owl to come and get it then so she was trying to find somewhere to put the mice out <laughs> and I see the owl like really like clued into her and like looking like it's like about to fly and I'm like this is kind of weird like usually they're not this <laughs> aggressive and then I look over at her and I see a mouse on the outside of her pack like crawling up the side of her pack and what had happened was is like normally we keep all the mice in this little like travel carrier like a little plastic you know cage that you've seen in like pet stores and stuff only like when we're actually hiking out to use them otherwise like they're in a bigger cage altogether and you know have a lot of amenities but when we are taking them into the field we have to put them in something small so they're in this little carrier and what had happened was is like the lid hadn't gotten totally shut on her carrier so it opened up the mice were just loose in her pack and one had made it out of the pack and was like climbing up and the owl definitely saw the mouse <laughs> So she's like looking down, not paying attention. And I just see this owl like go for her pack, you know, cause it sees the mouse. <laughs> so I, I don't know, I yelled probably a lot of expletives and, <laughs> and she heard me and like ducked quickly and the owl just like, you know, it swooped near her. It wasn't gonna actually go for her, but it was trying to get the mouse. And yeah. then realized that like she was moving and the mouse was moving so it couldn't get it. But it dove at her and like stooped pretty low and then landed like a couple feet away in a tree. And she was like, holy shit, you know, we were freaking out. And I was like, okay. So I was like grabbing the mice off her pack and like trying to put them back in the carrier. Meanwhile, the owl's like looking like it's ready to go again. I'm like, oh, my oh God, God, that never happened. I'm so sorry. So everyone was fine, but it's it like, was pretty hilarious. Like a kid like rushing for candy that's like falling out of a yeah. Where the kid's like, I'm gonna get all the candy. And you're like, wait, yeah. wait, wait. <laughs> or like a dog, or you like drop food and the dog like instantly goes for it. You're like, no. Like, yeah, it's one of those moments where it was like, oh no. And yeah, it all, we got all the mice. We mouse the owl. He took it straight to the nest. He confirmed where the nest was. And Overall, it all worked out. But <laughs> it was pretty, and in the moment, it was terrifying, especially for her, I'm sure, because the owl was like going straight at her. And she, yeah, probably had no idea what was happening she didn't know the mice had gotten out because they were all in a pack behind her so <laughs> it was hilarious and really like adrenaline inducing for a couple seconds and then we were dying laughing about it <laughs> yeah so crazy that, stuff happened that is a great thing yeah you got to see them up close like that and get to see them like hunt prey and stuff it's really cool and you know we don't do it often because we don't have to usually but when we do do it it is it's pretty cool and usually we're able to use that to find nests and things so yeah. it's useful it has a purpose and yeah that's a very cool thing to experience I almost wish sometimes like we all as field techs and biologists would just like have GoPros attached yep. to us <laughs> imagine getting that on film like I've that. totally had that conversation with so many people and I mean yes it'd be cool to have the GoPros on you for all the cool stuff too but also for like all the times where you're like whoops I just like fell down this 24th drainage like good thing I'm fine or like clumsily like stumbling through rough terrain or like you know getting stuck in cacti or like you know all the other things that happen when you're in the field or like you're like oh man I wish like this is embarrassing and horrible but like I wish this was on video somewhere like you know have all this experience documented yes <laughs> yeah. yes and and that brings up a good point too as I kind of start to wrap up um I I think like there's so many amazing experiences we get working with wildlife and, and the cool stories that you get and the, just the hardcoreness of being out in the field all the time. And that's, and you get to encounter nature up close and personal. So, but it's not always as great and awesome as it sounds like you have <laughs> a ton of challenges, including 
slipping down steep mountainsides and falling yeah. into water and snakes and cacti cacti I keep saying the plural of cacti like I'm saying that like octopuses is supposed to be octopuses but cacti plural is cacti mm -hmm. <laughs> anyway so um there's just so many challenges that come with field work and I think it's a in some ways it's good and I say this with a grain of salt and a lot of nuances and asterisks but it's good to volunteer first in, in mm. field work to see if you even like it like right. there was a um a girl who i was working with on a project and she had just signed up to be a master's student for some related herpetology project and she came out in the field with us when we were doing cerulean warbler stuff and she hated it like she was hiking yeah. all around like i was trying to coach her like have a positive attitude like this is just field work it's just well, you got to go through and she left the master's program the next day like if she had yeah. volunteered maybe she could have been like oh I actually don't like field work and I don't want to do this all the time so it's not for everyone so it's good to like know and maybe that's a way that the community can raise awareness is like by hopefully narrowing down this pool of applicants so like it's really the people who really want it who are mm -hmm. going to be in the field and who get the money that's afforded to them not yeah. like someone who's like, ah, I want to play with animals all the time. Well, that's not what it is. Mm -hmm. like, yeah. Just, and I definitely, I always tell people that if, you know, any like friends or people I meet who are like trying to get into this field and they're like, oh, I really don't have experience with like endangered species, but I want this job. Or I really don't have experience with mammals, but I want this mammal job. I'm like, most employers don't really care. They're going to have to train you anyway on whatever you're doing, unless it's like bird banding, which is kind of universal. But a lot of projects, like everyone's going to be a little bit different. And so like even working with spotted owls, every spotted owl project is a little bit different. So they're going to do things a little bit differently. So like, regardless of even if I've had like seven seasons of spotted owl work, if I go to work at a completely different spotted owl program, I'm gonna have to be trained a little bit on like what their protocols are. So most employers are expecting that. But if you can prove to them that like, okay, I have not worked with birds maybe at all or spotted owls at all, but I have this experience working with herps or something or snakes or whatever, you know, whatever, yeah, whatever you have experience with, or maybe you had experience doing like vegetation stuff. Like I was doing fire clearance for this ACE crew or something, you know, if you have, experience showing that like I can be outside and really like variable weather like super hot or super cold or whatever you know super crazy conditions I hiked 10 miles a day I was carrying a 50 pound pack or whatever like that kind of stuff is what shows employers like okay you're, you, you're positive you know what this is going to entail like you're totally willing to put in the hard work and and do a lot of the difficult work and it is like there's so many great stories and like so many awesome stuff but there's so many days where like I was surveying all day and I never saw a single owl or you know, whatever it may be, like there, there are a lot of, or, you know, with condors, like we bait our sites with dead cows. So like, you know, you have to be comfortable hauling around dead cows and like cutting dead cows up. Like <laughs> that's not super glamorous and it's not, you know, that's not fun. It's not like the best part of the job, but if you're someone who's like able to do that and also, you know, do it with a positive attitude and love doing that because you understand that it, that it, that's what conservation is. then like that to me, and I think to a lot of employers is like, way more important than saying, okay, I have, you know, seven seasons of this exact experience, like I know what I'm doing kind of thing. And yeah, I don't know, at least from my perspective, that that can be the best thing to emphasize if you if you are someone who's applying for jobs and that, and and not really sure how to like go about expressing your qualifications if you don't feel like you're super qualified. Right. That's a great point. You can hack it. You can hack it. Mm -hmm. You can make it and exactly. you can have a great attitude through whatever they throw at you, <laughs> whether it's hauling dead cattle or sitting still for hours on end where nothing happens. Well, Danae, is there anything that you'd like to add? Any final thoughts about, I don't know, like just this whole system, this whole ecosystem that biologists have created and, and it has inadvertently led to exploitation and um, traps of falling into pay to work schemes and all that crap that we're trying to get rid of. Mm -hmm. Any final thoughts or, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. I think we talked about a lot of the big issues and stuff. And I mean, I guess my big thing that I wanna leave off with is just like encouraging people. I mean, there there's a folder on my computer that has all my old job applications in it. And there are literally hundreds of job applications in there. And I think, you know, besides the money, besides all the financial aspect of things, that is one of the biggest impediments to coming into this field is 
you might have to apply to 50 jobs for one field season to hear mm -hmm. back from one person. But all it takes is that one person to say yes, mm -hmm. that gives you that experience that then leads to the next job and leads to the next job. And so I think that that was really hard for me coming into the field, even with the, you know, I had a little bit of experience, but it took me months to get my first field job. And that that was something that I hadn't really totally been anticipating. Like I was like, oh, I'm qualified and, and I have some experience, like people are just gonna wanna hire me. And I was applying to jobs where, you know, there were probably hundreds of other people applying to that job that had way more experience than I did. And so I think it can be super discouraging. I definitely went through a period where I got pretty depressed because I was like, I don't think I can do it in this field. You know, I'm a smart person. I have some experience, like I should be able to get these jobs and I just wasn't. And so I think, you know, it can be super discouraging you know, A, from the financial aspect of it, where you're not getting paid a lot, and B, because it's just so hard to get the jobs, even that aren't paid, but I think, yeah, that was something that I really struggled with getting into this field, and that, I, yeah, I really just want to reach out to everyone who's in that position, and is applying for all these jobs, and is hearing back no's, or sometimes hearing back, most of the time, hearing back nothing at all, and just to, you know, keep at it, if this is something you really want to do, keep pushing forward, you know, it, it, it is hard, it's difficult, there's a lot of challenges, but it's definitely worth it. And if you could just get that one job, even if it's like something totally, you know, like, I definitely want to work with wolves, like I did. And then I was like, well, I'll try birds, you know, <laughs> like, even if it's not something that you think you want to get into, like, A, you may discover a passion for something that you didn't know you had, or B, you can meet people in that job that will then lead you into a job that's more what you want to do. Um, and so it's really just about getting your foot in the door and just, yeah, having, taking care of your mental health and really trying to, to stay positive and just know that there are people out there who support you and think that you're valuable and that your mm -hmm. skills and your passion is valuable. And yes. even if it seems like employers aren't recognizing that, like there are other people in this field that do, and it's just, it takes time to find those people, but, um, mm -hmm. but yeah, it, it does work out and, and those opportunities are there. They're just really hard to find <laughs> and, and that sucks. And I'm sorry, but like, we got this, like, we just got to keep pushing through and, and, and get over that, that hurdle. And yeah, just keep applying to jobs. <laughs> Even if you're hearing back no's, just keep doing it, keep going for it. That's what you want to do and, and find other jobs to work in the meantime. That might, that might be the case, but yeah, if that's really your dream. Like it's totally worth it to push for it and, and go for it. It's yeah. The rewards are amazing, even if they're not financial. <laughs> there are other rewards in life that totally about mm -hmm. the money. That's really good encouragement because I sometimes I talk to people and I like will feel like I'm being so negative, like oh, it's so hard, mm -hmm. you know. But I just want people to know what they're getting into when they yeah, totally. I want this. I'm like, do you really know what this entails? Like really. Mm -hmm. And how hard are you willing to work for it? Because it's doable. It's it's right. it's a reachable goal. Like you can get there, but you're going to have to move a lot and you're going to have to apply mm -hmm. for positions and never hear back. And you're going to have to work mm -hmm. for free, which sucks. And that's just the way it is right now. And hopefully the system will change and hopefully we can find more ways to get money to conservation. But that's just how it is right now. Yeah. How it should be. But exactly. <laughs> yeah, totally. Thank you so much, Janae, for being on here. It was a joy to hear your stories and just to hear your progress through all that, um, how you changed from carnivores to birds. I think that's really, like, that's really encouraging to hear that it's okay. You know what I mean? Like, give yourself the freedom. And if you really want carnivore, like, I have a friend, Kelsey, who is pursuing carnivore work, and she is she got the position after mm -hmm. years and years of trying. Yeah. It's doable, but it's also like the allowance to try other things. And it just depends on yeah. what your is. You For me, like I am totally now I'm like happier working with condors, I feel like, than I ever would have been with wolves. You know, like this is I found a, you know, a work that I that I didn't know I would have loved, but you know, I think that's just yeah, that's been the big thing for me is like yeah, just being willing to like try new things and go for things, even if I didn't think originally I would like them. And there's also been jobs I've had where I thought I would love it and I didn't. So it's, you know, it's like, you just, you just try those experiences, apply to everything you can and, and figure out what you want and don't want. And like, if you're passionate enough about it and push for it and are willing to put in the hard work to get there, like, like you said, like there are opportunities. And like, if I really had really wanted to work with wolves and like kept going on that track, I think I could have made it happen. It's mm -hmm. just that 
I shifted my focus to a different passion and started and started going a different way. And I'm, you know, I don't regret any of that. Like I'm so happy where I ended up and I, yeah, I'm loving what I do, but yeah, it's definitely, yeah, it's, it's one of the things of, of being a part of this field is like, you just find all these new, new things to be passionate about that you didn't know about, which is also awesome. <laughs> Overall wise, you get to do biology and conservation and work outside and whether that's with a carnivore or with plants or with California condors, mm -hmm. you get to do that passion. That that was more important than the actual species sometimes. So. Exactly, totally. Well, your story is fascinating. I loved it. I love talking with you. I love meeting you, heck. Like yeah, yeah. <laughs> <friend. too. laughs> yeah, no, it was super awesome. It's, yeah, it's really great to just talk to a like-minded person who's in this field and knows what it's like and is trying to raise awareness of some of the big issues that myself and so many others are facing right now like that. Yeah, it's it's really important work. And yeah, I'm so I'm so happy to like get your email and hear that like there was someone out there who's like trying to raise awareness on these issues because from my perspective sometimes it could seem like there isn't really anyone who cares or anyone who's doing anything about it and yeah I'm very happy to like be a part of that and be a part of that mission that's super awesome and yeah I wish you the best of luck and keep me posted on all your future <laughs> future developments it's so awesome thanks so much it was a pleasure to meet you and um good luck with your the rest of your field season what time what day or what's like time of year does your field season end? Um, so I'm year round right now. Really? Um, yeah, I'm in a temporary like year round <laughs> position. I just applied for a permanent job um, with the condo program here. So we'll see, but, <laughs> but yeah, so still like semi-seasonal up in the air, but yeah, thankfully have been here for almost, yeah, I guess as of this week, a full, a full year I've been here, so. Yeah, just it's the first time, the longest I've been anywhere. So it's pretty <laughs> awesome. That interview and you're like, I caught Condor 3.30. Yeah. <laughs> I know. I wish I had interviewed for the position after that. I already interviewed for it. Oh, no. Like, oh, <laughs> that would have been such a good, like, tell us about experience you're really proud of. Like, mm. <laughs> name drop that. But yeah, I missed opportunity, but we'll see. <laughs> well, good luck. Good luck. Thank you. Yeah, thanks. And We're yeah, so good luck with everything on your end, too. So nice to meet you. Yeah. I'll talk to you later. Bye, Okay, Jenny. bye. Thanks for listening. And remember, ethical conservation needs and deserves funds so that passionate people like you can get paid what they're worth. There's enough money to go around. Let's go get it and use it for the good of our planet. Thank you.